all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to an old friend, Will Caldwell of Snap, Snap and HD, which is a real estate technology platform uh, specifically for consumers uh, getting, you know, kind of like a credit score. For their home buying purchase, uh, it is a um, a data play for sure. And I want to start this podcast off um, with Will reading something uh, for me. And um, I had the pleasure of pulling this up today. And for those who are listening and not watching this on YouTube, um, I, uh, I I want Will. Uh, this is an email, right? That Will Will sent me years ago. And I think it's important that everyone read it. Um, so please hold. So, and then Will's just going to read this out loud. <clears throat> and it's going to make me want to kill myself. So <laughs> with that being said, let me find where I'm at here. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Hi, David. <laughs> Wanted to touch base and let you know we're closing out our growth round for Snap NHD. Over the past two years, we have grown from zero to 130K in MRR. We finished last year with 1.12 million in revenue and looking to close out the last 200K in our round. I thought your firm may, a good, may be a good fit. If you're interested, do you have time this week for a quick call? Thanks. Well, I mean, it makes me want to cry. What would that 200K have gotten me, Will? Um, what are valuation? I think we were raising at like a, a four and a half million low valuation. Yeah, yeah. dude, <laughs> it was four and a half on 130 k of MRR. Doesn't happen anymore. Um, no, there's a four and a half k note. <laughs> yeah, so you would have been a ten been bagger a, for me. That would have been a ten bagger. <laughs> uh, wow. That's uh, that makes me sad. I could I could have used that two million bucks, <laughs> especially now. Uh, but you know the good things are we you know we can laugh about it today, and we're on this podcast. So, Will, why don't you tell the audience uh, how much of an idiot I am for not investing in Snap and HD, and tell me about a little bit about the pain point that you're solving for, and the growth that you've had, and what you're doing. Well. You should always any company that's grown from zero to over a hundred k MMR in in a, in a less than two years is is definitely worth a look. Um, mm-hmm. But the pain point we're solving and why I'm excited about Snap is we are in a market that's dominated by legacy incumbents um, in the space that have been around for twenty thirty years and r- real no innovation and I like the saying fat cats don't hunt. And 
and I like to find margin in products that are required by law. There's a, there's a strong business case. And Snap has two products. Um, one's called a natural hazard disclosure report. Think like Carfax for your house. It's required by law on every home sale in California. It sells for $100. And the secret sauce to that business and what's kind of spurred us to our second phase of Snap was aggregating all the data that goes into these reports. So think like flood, fire, earthquake, property tax data, all gets put into this report. And over the last couple of years, we've, we've aggregated all this data, built our own APIs, put it on modern technology infrastructure, which allowed us to like drive our costs down to almost like a fixed cost platform. It was kind of the whole goal. It's like, how do we get a fixed operating cost um, that can scale basically infinity? Um, and we achieved that with the hazard report. And over the last couple of years, we expanded beyond that kind of similar ethos into the mortgage market uh, with what's called a flood determination. And we already had the flood data uh, for the whole country due to our hazard report in California. And it just kind of led us to, hey, we need flood data. And I learned that flood, flood determinations are required on every mortgage, refi, and HELOC in the United States. And so it's a much bigger market than just our natural hazard product in California. And similar ethos, integrate all that data internally, pipe it into all the existing infrastructure that the mortgage market runs on and automate and sell against the incumbents. Um, and we've done so with some pretty good success in the last couple of years. So that's kind of been what we're doing is identifying strong business cases, having customers ready to go on our products that we're launching um, and high margins. It just, because in our space with the cyclical nature of real estate, you need a high margin business to survive the ups and downs of the market as we're in now. So, And so when, when you said fat cats don't haunt, which I love, by the way, um, fat, who were the fat cats in this, in this world when you, when you came into it and how did you know that, you know, this was going to be a great opportunity? Um, I looked at it. I'll just backtrack from there. So I was running a SaaS business before it was like more in the marketing called Dizzle selling to real estate agents. And I was struggling with churn on that business just, and I was frustrated with how like we'd sell these customers and they all just quit. And it was just like, it felt like a hamster wheel. And so I knew I needed to get my point of view. I wanted to get into a business that had like a product that was one, some type of, I wasn't creating a new market. There was an existing budget item and that's how I found out. That's where I wanted to be. Um, and these natural hazard report companies were owned by title companies. So think First American, Fidelity, Chicago Title, Stewart. You know, companies that have been around 100 years, um, really just pushing selling insurance. Um, not the most innovative group of companies that, that come to mind. Um, and so our my my thesis was I could automate this build a great team culture, uh, better product and, and compete head to head with, with the, the main players in the space. And these companies are, you know, six to $12 billion market cap businesses. Um, and so that kind of, that's the fat cats. Yeah. They're not moving. They're not moving fast. Right. So, so how were they doing it? Like, were they just, were they just going and finding 
information, raw information on the database and having people manually put together these reports. And then you're doing that in an automatic way. And that's how you're able to build efficiency. Like where did this data live that you're aggregating and making reports on? Yeah, the data is like disparate databases, like um, all over government agencies. Uh, It's messy. It's hard to normalize. It's like a lot of dirty work. I know Mm -hmm. our competitors will run teams in India manually producing these reports. So the turnaround times are 24 hours or longer, where ours is 30 seconds. And when you're selling to real estate agents or just anyone in the middle of a transaction, they want it yesterday. So if you can deliver yesterday consistently, um, that was our kind of our mantra entering the market. Yeah. So you kind of came in and even though they were outsourcing it, you were just figuring a way to naturalize the data or, I mean, were you using like data warehouses back then? Was that a big thing or, you know, did technology kind of evolve uh, to allow you to do this in a way that, you know, which was faster in the last what 2019? So what last four or five years? Yeah. The one thing was cost. Like you could buy the data, but it was really expensive. Um, and the, the, the hosting costs across the board continued to go down. And so that was, that was the advantage, like coming, breaking into the market, at least our competitive advantage is just a cost perspective. We could spend more to acquire customers. Um, and the customers are sticky. Once you get them, they don't really leave. So it's like kind of, that's the play. So you you would sell directly to the mortgage brokers who would, you know, essentially insert this, um, your offering into the title. Because I remember I went to your office and I saw a pyramid of paper checks that were stacked to the ceiling. So, I mean, were you paid out of title? Yeah. So we get paid out of escrow. So at the escrow. end of the day, we're getting paid by the consumer. So what's fascinating about this market is there's not a lot of price sensitivity to the retail price. So it's just a matter of how, again, your internal operational costs and maintaining that, which is really interesting um, compared to a lot of other markets. And so, and then this next evolution of what you're doing is, is you're actually putting buttons within their pre-existing software to generate these reports, correct? Yeah, and that's kind of what's creating the moat. So what we saw as a lot of like digital transaction management platforms came online the last 10 years, um, getting in early with those companies and being embedded in their systems creates a moat. Because they're just, once you have enough suppliers in these marketplaces that those companies don't want more players in. So you've kind of been, we've been able to like silo off the available market and then compete for the market share that way and become more entrenched in the space. Like you can't just mm-hmm. go integrate with these legacy platforms off the street. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. You have to have the relationships. That's when, you know, this stuff really goes into like the soft skills of the business, right? You actually have to work those partnerships in order to get those integrations. It's not only that it's expensive. Um, there's minimums involved. There's upfront fees, dev costs. So it's, it's it's not just that it's it's pricey. You know, it could be a hundred thousand dollars just to open the door. Sounds like you need some more money. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I have a reaction well, just... shot here. <laughs> Touche.
Yeah, I don't know. We're gonna have to speak offline because I have a feeling that you know either you want to take some money off the table because you're about to get married, right? And the real estate market's contracting a little bit. I mean, this is a perfect time. I smell blood in the water. It's time for me. Uh, this is my entry point. The business is derailed. <laughs> um, so one thing when I went to come visit you in your beautiful office in La Jolla was, um, you said something very interesting to me and. I never had success in real estate technology for the same reason that you didn't have success selling because I was selling software into realtors, right? The churn was just untenable and, you know, segmenting that market and targeting that market to like even the most mature real estate agents seemed to be impossible. Um, You said something very interesting to me, which is that you do not know of a better industry to invest in than real estate in the next 10 years. And you basically demonstrated that to me based on the the growth that needs to happen. So I would love if you would unpack that. Yeah. So a lot of interesting tidbits in the news recently. Um, Well, you had the financial crisis. So after that, there was no new building really um, for the last 10 years across the country. Population growth. um, And so what we're running into now is a very short supply of homes. More people want them than that is available. If you read the news last week, Warren Buffett just invested, I think, $800 million into DR Horton and Lennar. Um, but we have a 10-year runway in front of us where we're going to have a really tight supply of homes and more buyers than people are willing to sell. And so as far as an industry is concerned, even with high interest rates... I still see a very stable market um, for the next 10 years, at least before um, supply catches up to demand, maybe longer. So as far as like an industry grows, the, the macro the macro factors are really strong. Yes. You have to survive the cyclical nature right now, the short term, like COVID rates were zero. Now they're at seven, but that will start to level off as inflation comes down, rates will drop. Um, and just the players in the space, like people don't like change, but if you're able to make it more efficient, cheaper for people to transact over the next 10 years, you have a very strong business. That's not, not going anywhere. It's not a, it's not a fad. And that's why I, I love this market. Yeah. I love the fact that institutional capital wasn't building, right. You know, I mean, it's being gun shy of, you know, the 2007 great financial crisis, so where where's the uh, I thought I was to say well we're going to start a VC fund specifically around real estate tech right and you know we had you know ten million fifteen million to deploy where is where is the puck going would you look into like home building construction software like internal like home building supply chain optimization how would you think about you know placing bets and what I'm excited about and I'm reading a lot more about is the well, we're in the flood business. Flooding is getting worse. Uh, climate change is, is coming. The regulations that cities are imposing on, on land, uh, landlords to get buildings compliant or net zero carbon emission, I think is going to be a huge space because they're going to start. New York City already has fines coming in in 2025. Don't, don't quote me, but they're, they're, they're going to start fining landlords if their, if their buildings are 
basically car- carbon neutral. Um, and it's going to take a lot of software, a lot of build, like a lot of retrofitting in that over the next 10 years to achieve those goals. And nothing spurs people to move than getting fined. And I think regulation is going to come in. I think that's a really hot space. And I'm pretty excited about anything in that world. So that's kind of like where I'm with place bets. So you would think it'd be like the measurable, but for, you know, uh, residential, like apartment buildings, like basically, do you remember that company that was in San Diego that, you know, like gave you kind of a credit score on your carbon emissions? Yeah, I think like measurable. I mean, they're, they've raised a lot of, they're raising more money. Like the, mm-hmm. it looks like they're doing great. Um, that, that space is exciting for me. Um, I mean, we're seeing it every day. So um, yeah, any, any, that, that would be it for me. Like if I was like a hot you know, buzzword, that would be kind of an exciting space to, to jump into. And so from a guy that never, I mean, you raised what, that one and a half million dollars and that was it, right? On that note? Yeah, we raised so, a total of 1.2 million, yeah. 1.2 to, you know, I mean, to bootstrap a company where you are, you know, profitable or near it, right? But at scale, right? How did you, you know, for founders that just can't possibly comprehend running a business, efficiently like with without the need of you know four or five million dollars how did you do it how did you think about putting yourself in a mindset where raising wasn't um you know something that was in the forefront of your mind um it was discipline financial discipline um we were able to generate cash quickly i think cash you know cash flow is important and we were able to we had some early wins um but again, it's identifying at the end of the day, it's identifying your customers and, and really the sooner you can nail product market fit is the sooner you can get to um, a profitable sales channel. And for us is we were able to hit a profitable sales channel within probably nine months of launching. And so we were burning cash and then the burn became less and we really had some big wins because um, we had product market fit like early and I think that's that was crucial to the whole thing. And once you start generating cash, it gets a little easier from there. Once you once you have twelve million dollars in re- revenue, is that where you felt like you kind of hit the product market fit threshold? Was it a dollar amount, or was yeah. it a customer feedback perspective? Like, how did you know? A million run rate felt right. It got a little easier. That's when I knew. Um, like that first million's hard, and it got a little easier um, from there. Yeah, so the first million was like you had to. You, it felt like you were trying to convince people of the value, and like you didn't really know yeah. you had something. And then after a million, you're like, oh shit, the, we actually are delivering value, and you know I can speak more competently. I can put more dollars behind this. It, the ROI is definitive, and I can win. That for sure. That's hundred percent it. Yeah. Um, so um, um, from the tech perspective, would you say the total value of your of your technology is the ability – I mean, it's obviously to, to generate cash and to generate margin of, of any business. From, from a tech perspective, is it the data naturalization that you feel is kind of like the moat and the, the true value in the IP? Yeah, that's, that's key. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, 
it's a hard, it's hard. It just takes time and it's hard and you have to have the right people looking at the right data. Um, yeah, that's kind of the, the moat and it gets even more moaty as you get entrenched into, I think in any kind of verticalized software industry, the more you become entrenched in that vertical, like the, the more intrinsic value you create because you're just connecting mm-hmm. disparate systems that are difficult to connect. And so that's... No, no. were you able... I mean, since these things are like public-facing, I'm sure some of it you can down... You know, CSV, some of it you... I mean, were you scraping it all? Were you using RPA or OCR for all this? Because I'm sure that a lot of this stuff was public. Yeah, a lot of it you can download. Um, some of it you have to buy from like governments and it comes on CD-ROMs. And <laughs> Dude, so you, then you have to buy a computer that has a CD-ROM, which is different. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was funny. When we first bought the, the county tax roll from San Diego County, I couldn't even tell you. I, I had no idea what I was looking at. And so just getting past that is is value because it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So what, um, from a company building perspective, what were the, some of the resources that you used? Because you didn't, you had a co-founder, right? I did in the beginning. Yeah. In the beginning. And they were bought out, I believe. And then, so what, what, where, how did you think, you know, about growing the company and like, what books did you like that you held close? You know, you're obviously a reader, right. And you know, what, what were some of the guiding principles that really, um, directed you to the success that you have today? An early one was that the Peter Thiel zero to one um, and the concept of, of doing the things that people don't want to do and doing them yourself um, and kind of carrying that through um, throughout the whole business um, was, was really instrumental. Uh, I was really fortunate with great mentors. I'm not technical, um, and they were able to surround me with really good technical talent. Some of my investors brought in my current CTO, like just people that I, that I trust that would bring in technical talent to help us build what we wanted to was invaluable, like to this day. So men- awesome. get mentors and yeah, it's crucial. And then you were a professional kiteboarder before you did this, right? I was. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Tell me about that. That's kind of how I got like found, you know, I got into entrepreneurship through kite surfing. I was, I was fortunate enough to go kite surf all over. And I was able to go to Maui on this thing called the Mai Tai. And it's a bunch of entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley and a lot of very successful entrepreneurs, like early Google employees, people that have sold their companies for hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was like, and they're kite surfing on the beach during the week. I'm like, I got to figure this out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, but I kite surfed and I was able to meet a lot of great people. I was in a Nissan commercial. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a great experience. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's a fun thing to do. So, you know, Laird Hamilton, do don't you? I have not met Laird. No. You look like a guy that would know Laird Hamilton. <laughs> I met Kyle Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Do you ever use one of those, um, those uh, kite surfing or kite, kite surfing sales that once it goes in the water, you're just done. Like it's, you can't pull it back up. 
I've had a few uh, kite mares, they call it. Yeah. <laughs> kite mare. <laughs> I love that. Um, that's awesome. Well, what's your, uh, what's one thing that's absolutely ridiculous about you that people don't know about? People don't know about me. Um, trying to think. Um, well, the, the Nissan commercial was cool. The, uh, I play ice hockey. I play mm-hmm. golf. Um, uh, that's not ridiculous. That's not, that's just, that's just know, like a normal thing. I know. I'm trying to think. <laughs> You get paid I'm by checks. That's pretty good. That yeah, I get, we get paid well, by we get paid by checks. <laughs> well, you know, I think that we definitely need to get a golf game scheduled before I leave town. Um, yes. And before you get, when are you coming back in town? I don't get back till October. Oh, then you're getting married, so you're you're out. You're done. I'm gone. Okay. All right. Well, congratulations, sir. Anyway, um, it's been a real pleasure um, having you on, um, and it's been really great to continue to get to know you and develop the relationship because I guarantee you, if it's not this one, I'm going to be in the next one. <laughs> I'm pretty persistent <laughs> that way. So anyway, yeah. thank you so much for listening. Yeah, um, no, every- if anyone's listening... Yeah, if anyone's listening that needs help, like getting to zero to one, like getting that product to market, I'm happy to give you my two cents. Done it a couple times now. So, yeah, and where can people reach you? Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. Just go to my, send me a LinkedIn message. Um, pretty responsive on there. I'll, I'll send you the link to that. Awesome. That's Will Caldwell of Snap in HD. That's S N A P N H D. We drop an episode every Tuesday. If you like it, please subscribe, uh, tell a friend. And if you're growing from zero to 120,000 a month within two years, you know, with not that much money, call me because I've learned my lesson. <laughs> I like, I like the 10 Xers. Um, I don't, I think it was a note and I think it was 200 K and it wasn't big enough, but anyway, it's stupid. A 10 X is a 10 X, right? Like, you know, that's all you have to say. Um, you need your 10, anyway, your 10 bangers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you guys so much. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.